Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest again on the show this time is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And he's here once again to talk uh, about the book of Daniel. And today we're up to probably what is the most complex chapter in the whole book, chapter 11. Alistair, hi, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Now, this is a very difficult chapter to summarize, but I'm going to ask you as we start whether you can give us a very brief overview. <laughs> it does feel a bit like a ping pong match between the King of the North and the King of the South, with things constantly going back and forth. It does. I think the he most helpful thing is to recognize that there are two forces. The first is the Ptolemies um, in the South, they're associated with Egypt, and then the North, the Syrian um, empire of the Seleucids. So there's Seleucus or, and his heirs and the Antiochus. Those sorts of names are the names that you'd associate with the northern kingdom of um, the Seleucid empire. And the southern kingdom has a series of Ptolemies that come out. So these are the two groups that are of the four that arise after the death of Alexander. So the story basically fills the gap between the end of the um, Persian Empire and then the rise of Herod the Great, and really takes us in the next chapter up to the time of Christ. Yes, how do the early verses of chapter 11 deal with the end of Persia and the coming of Greece and these Greek kingdoms? It's very much an outline. Um, we have throughout this text very sketchy account of what's going to take place in the future. So we have just three kings arising, a fourth that's going to be richer, and then this removal with the mighty king that arises. Now, we've already dealt with some of this material back in preceding chapters, in chapter eight, for instance, with the ram and the goat and the conflict between them. This is another way of speaking about that. And we're going to cover the material that covers the last two empires, especially. So the empires leading up to Rome. What do verses three and four tell us about Alexander the Great of Greece and his successors? So Alexander the Great conquers an immense amount of the world in a short period of time. And we saw this description of his kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks, as pouncing over the land like a leopard, barely touching the ground. This just is a huge wave of conquest over the um, ancient world. And after the death of Alexander, the kingdom is not actually, the empire is not consolidated. It ends up being divided into four parts. We saw other images of those four parts in preceding chapters, but you have the Cassander and Macedon and Greece. You have Antigonus with um, Anatolia and Asia Minor. You have um, Seleucus, Mesopotamia, and then you have the Ptolemies with Egypt and the south. And so Alexander's son inherits nothing, but there are these northern and southern powers that we have from that point onwards, the Ptolemies associated with, associated with Egypt, and then Seleucus associated with Syria in particular and Mesopotamia. Yes, I want to come on and talk about the Ptolemies in a moment, but how does Zechariah chapter 9, 1 to 10 prophesy the coming of Alexander, and how does it relate to Daniel chapter 11? So I'll have to remind myself a bit of, of this. Yes, we have a number of prophecies in scripture that look a bit further ahead within the intertestamental period. And 
Zechariah chapter 9 is one of them. We have these other prophecies elsewhere in Daniel concerning the leopard, for instance, or concerning the, the goat and the ram. These are all looking forward to the period of Alexander. But most of the prophecies in Scripture don't actually, of the Old Testament don't look that far beyond that period. And as we go through the book of Daniel, there's a sense of the, the strangeness that he has such a far horizon for his prophecies. He's speaking about events that lie um, over 500 years in the future. And so there's a sense of fear and trembling as he's looking for Imagine how we would feel if we were discovering events from maybe the year 2500. 20, it just seems so far off. But yet Daniel's receiving these sorts of revelations. And the story of Daniel takes us up to the early part of the Persian Empire as Cyrus is in place. But he's looking beyond that to the reign of Alexander and even beyond that to the rise of the Romans and the Herods. And the rise of Alexander is something that is very significant within this chapter. And we have discussions of it in intertestamental literature and histories, but it's helpful to see how it fits into the bigger picture. And one of the benefits of this chapter is it gives you a sort of general map as the events occurred that you'll be able to look back and make sense of how they fit in. And so we have other sketchy prophecies elsewhere in places like Zechariah chapter 9 that look forward to figures like, like Alexander. But for the most part, you're looking back and seeing how they fit into these very vague outlines of empires and figures to come. Well, the history is really quite precise, isn't it, if you chart it out? Uh, and are we, dare, I, dare I ask, are we able to do a little bit of this just to give listeners a bit of an idea of how precise these prophecies in Daniel actually were. How do verses 5 to 20 deal with the history of the northern and southern kingdoms, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, is it? Yes, so we have these two great powers, the north, the Seleucids, and the south, Ptolemies. Remember that, and a lot of the things will make a lot more sense. Also, many of these kings and emperors have the same name. So the northern kingdom is of the Seleucids is associated with the name Seleucus and also Antiochus. And then the southern kingdom is associated with the name Ptolemy. And so we have a series of Ptolemies, and then we have a series of Antiochuses and Seleucuses. So Ptolemy, the first Ptolemy, was around 322 to 3 or to 285 BC. He buried the body of Alexander in Alexandria. And then there was a series of 13 Ptolemies. And he sought to gain legitimacy by his association with Alexander in the south and in Egypt. And then Seleucus one of the officers under Ptolemy was attacked by Antigonus and Seleucus was equipped to defeat Antigonus by Ptolemy. So that's dealing with the events of verse five. As we go further on, it gets into more detail of the rise of the Ptolemies and the, and the Seleucids and then the wars between them. There's a series of six Syrian wars over the years that follow. So the first Syrian war is started by Antiochus the first with Ptolemy II. So Ptolemy II was given the authority over Egypt by his father, Ptolemy I, and he ruled from 285 to 246 and married his sister. And after the Second Syrian War in 248, the war ended with a marriage treaty, and Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II, was given to Antigon Antiochus II. And then Laodice, 
the replaced wife of Antiochus II was not too keen on this new arrangement. She go mad and have them all murdered. Yeah, poisoned her husband, his new yeah. wife, and her son in 246 BC, and there was a coup. So we're dealing with those details within the text itself. It marks up all of these events. So when these things occurred, people would look at this text and go, wow, this was predicted long in advance in the end of, at the end of the 6th century BC, all of these things were already anticipated by Daniel and his prophecy. So then the branch from the roots, Ptolemy III arises. He's the brother of Berenice. He seeks to avenge her death and launch, launches the third Syrian war. So we've got three Syrian wars so far. He plunders, prevails over Seleucus II, Antiochus is the the second's successor and gets lots of plunder. The attempts at reconciliation and or the attempts at retaliation fail, and he returns to his own land. So we've got three wars now. The um, the next war is started by Seleucus the second or his heirs, and in that's in two nineteen BC that that starts. And that's Antiochus the third and Ptolemy the fourth. And Ptolemy IV brings a force up against Antiochus III, who was defeated at Raphia in 217 BC. And that war ends about six years later in 211 BC. Ptolemy IV is exalted in pride and he ends up seeking to persecute the Jews. There is then a fifth Syrian war, if we're keeping track. Antiochus III regathers his forces, forms a greater army, and prepares for that war. And that's in Verse 13, if you're keeping track of the events, I'm trying to track it through. So then there's failed messianic Jewish re resistance to the Ptolemies. That's presumably referred to in verse 14. In verse 15, the king of the north is the um, king Antiochus III. The king of the south, who leads the forces there, is Ptolemy V. He becomes king in 205 BC. Antiochus retakes Caesarea and Judah. Antiochus III successfully takes Judah, the glorious land, around 197 BC. So we've covered quite a bit of ground so far from around the end of the fourth century BC to the very end of the second century BC at this point. A Seleucid king, Antiochus III, gives his daughter Cleopatra, not that one, a much less famous Cleopatra, to the young Ptolemy V in marriage. Although this is an important event because it's actually recorded, the wedding is recorded on the famous Rosetta Stone. Ah. So the Rosetta Stone is the famous stone that's discovered with writing in three different languages that helped us to um, discover how to translate. Um, and, and so this is an important archaeological find and actually records this event, this wedding um, between the daughter of the saluted king Antiochus III and Ptolemy V. And his intention, um, Antiochus III, the Seleucid king, that's the northern king, he hoped to subvert the reign of Ptolemy through the influence of his daughter. And unfortunately for him, that backfired. She ended up steering her husband towards alliance with Rome instead of with Antiochus. And so Antiochus went to attack coastal towns, Ptolemaic and Greek cities, this is in verse 18. And when the Greek cities appealed to the Roman Republic, they fought against Antiochus III. He invaded Greece, but he was decisively defeated by the Romans at Thermopylae and Magnesia. 
they took Asia Minor from him and drove him back completely. And so in the Treaty of Apamea in 188 BC, Antiochus III completely abandoned Europe and was forced to submit to some very humiliating terms. Antiochus III was murdered in 187 BC while trying to plunder a temple in Susa to pay off his war debts. And so he's removed from the playing board in verse 19. And then in verse 20, Seleucus IV is the successor of Antiochus III. He needed to pay off his father's war debts to the Romans. He sent Heliodorus to the temple in Jerusalem to loot its treasuries. But Heliodorus was expelled from the temple. He claimed that su supernatural powers had prevented him from entering. And then later he assassinated his master, the king Seleucus IV, hoping to seize the throne for himself. So that takes us up to verse 21. Yes, and Antiochus the Great was seen as a, a great deliverer by the Jewish people, wasn't he? Yes. So at this point, we have a new figure on the board who's Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's a much more complicated character. We've got four um, Antiochuses now. This is the one who takes over after the assassination of his brother, Seleucus IV, the usurp by the usurper Heliodorus. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he's another son of Antiochus III, he recovers the kingdom in 175 BC with the aid of the king of Pergamum. He claims to rule as a co-regent with an infant son of Seleucus IV on behalf of the rightful heir, Demetrius I, his nephew, who is currently imprisoned in Rome. And then Antiochus IV later murdered his infant co-regent. So he's a devious guy. He's someone who has designs on the kingdom, who originally comes in by guile and deceit. And we see that within verse 21. What follows then is conflict within the land of Judah that gets embroiled within this larger conflict. So during this period in Jerusalem, let's put the larger battles between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies to one side. At this time in Jerusalem, there are two different factions fighting for dominance. The key figure within Jerusalem during this period was the high priest. And there were two factions, the Tobiads and the Anayads. The former, the Tobiads, were Hellenizers who celebrated the sort of cultural sophistication of the Greeks, and they really wanted to move in that sort of direction. Whereas the latter, the Anayads, were more conservative Jews, and they supported Jewish nationalism or Egyptian governance. And these two groups struggled for dominance over the high priesthood in Jerusalem in the years leading up to the Maccabean Revolt, which we'll get to very soon. And so the high priesthood was the focal Jewish power in Jerusalem at this period. The Anayads were represented by Anias III, the high priest and the descendant of Zadok, and they resented the Hellenizing influence of Seleucid rule. So you've got the Seleucids, who are the northern force, and then you've got the southern force, the Ptolemies. Always worth keeping that in mind and reminding of ourselves, ourselves of that regularly. Otherwise, we're going to get dizzy at the end of this chapter. There's just so much going on. So the conflict between these two factions would play a very important role in what followed. Joshua um, had Joshua, who had taken the Greek name Jason, represented the Tobiads, although he was the brother of Anias III, was sent, he was sent to Antiochus IV, and he proposed that he replace his brother as high priest. And in exchange for this, he offered increased tax revenue uh -huh. and proactive Hellenization of Jerusalem. And so he was made high priest 
in 174 BC. Although he was the high priest, he encouraged his compatriots to adopt Greek customs and ways and values. So he built, for instance, a large gymnasium next to the temple and Jews participating in the games would use false foreskins to cover up their circumcision as they were all competing naked. So this is a period of great compromise and syncretism. And they're representing again, the Tobiads, remember that faction of the Hellenizers, and then the others are the Anayads who would be the more conservative Jews. In 171 BC, a Tobiad, again, this is the more liberalizing Hellenizing faction, named Menelaus was sent to Antiochus with tribute. And he offered greatly to increase Jerusalem's tax revenue if Antiochus would only install him as the high priest instead of Jason. And so sure enough, Menelaus, although having no connection with the line of Zadok or of Aaron, was established as the high priest by Antiochus. And then he raided the temple treasuries to pay tribute to Antiochus. So when Ananias III, who had been deposed for Jason, his predecessor publicly protested against this, Menelaus had him murdered. And so the murder of Ananias III is likely the reference to the Prince of the Covenant in verse 22. And this summarizes events of Antiochus IV, Epiphany's early reign. Can I just to jump in there for one second? Sorry to interrupt, but it's vitally important that we understand that 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 point with Menelaus, the official Zadokite high priest line is dissolved, which is of enormous importance for the sacrifices because the temple system basically doesn't work anymore. Am I correct? Yeah, we have a number of ways in which the temple system over this period is corrupted. The priesthood is corrupted, the worship is corrupted, and then the temple itself is desecrated. And so there are a series of breakdowns of the system. This is a period of considerable crisis. Right. And so verse 23 likely describes, again, going back to Antiochus's deceitful rise to power. We've had that aside on the conflicts within Jerusalem at this period over the priesthood. Antiochus originally arose to power with this deceit, um, claiming to reign on behalf of Demetrius I, and alongside this um, infant co-ruler who he later killed. And then he ends up seizing power for himself. And he has greater wealth to employ than his predecessors who had costly war debts to Rome. And so he uses his funds to buy loyalty and his desire for larger funding is an important element of what precipitates the crisis of the period in Jerusalem. Again, remember a lot of tax things are behind this, raiding of temples and their treasuries. This is because they yeah, all not- had to pay tribute. They had to pay tribute to the Romans, presumably. This is how Rome gained its power. Yes, I mean, it's the war debts that they had to the Romans were considerable. And so raiding the temples and all these sorts of things were ways in which they could pay them off. And the Anayads at this point appealed to Ptolemy for help. The young Ptolemy VI sent a force into the south of Syria, hoping to take back Jerusalem in 170 BC. And this is the sixth Syrian war. So we've had six to this point. Jerusalem had been lost to the Seleucids under Antiochus III in 197 BC, but this force was decisively defeated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, as Ptolemy was betrayed by people close to him. And all of this is being dealt with in verses 25 to 26. If you're tracing through your chapter of the of Daniel chapter 11, highly recommend that you do, because otherwise you're just going to get confused. But this will give you reference points within the history and help to connect them with the actual text in front of you. Antiochus took the whole of Egypt, save for Alexandria, 
took Ptolemy VI captive and reduced Ptolemy, his nephew, to the status of a puppet king. And in response to this, the city of Alexandria set up Ptolemy VI's younger brother as king there. Ptolemy VI and Antiochus united against this common enemy, enemy while still very much scheming against each other, speaking lies at the same table, verse 27. And he did not defeat Alexandria. He was likely concerned about how Rome would respond. So at this point, Antiochus returns to Syria to regroup. He passes by Jerusalem on his way. And with the help of the high priest Menelaus, he levies attacks on the people and he takes tribute from the temple treasury. This is verse 28. In his absence, Ptolemy VI, Antiochus's puppet king, was driven out by Ptolemy VIII, Fiscon, the man Alexandria had set up. And so there are various kings ruling alongside each other. There's a sort of civil war situation. The deposed Ptolemy VI went to Rome to seek for aid. And so now we're getting up to verses 29 to 30. In 168 BC, Antiochus IV returned to Egypt. But now there were Roman forces on the side of Ptolemy VI who weren't happy with this destabilizing of the region. Egypt was known as Rome's bread basket, so they didn't really want to have the region disrupted. And they were naturally concerned about Antiochus's actions in the region. The Romans sent a senator, Papilius Linnaeus, who set Antiochus an ultimatum. He drew a circle famously around Antiochus, and he required a response from him before he left it. Either he would withdraw from Egypt, or he would continue his expedition and face the wrath of Rome, who would declare war upon him. So the Romans are the ships from Kittim referred to in verse 30. So at this point, Antiochus has received a bit of a drubbing. And so he goes back, tail between his legs, away from Egypt. And in Jerusalem at this time, news had been received that he was killed. And so Jason, the high priest, deposed for Menelaus, sought to regain control of the priesthood and of Jerusalem. And Menelaus and the other leading Tobias fled to the Syrians in Egypt. Antiochus, course is still very much alive news to the of his death to the contrary and he was infuriated so he crushes rebellion fat rebellious his intent is to crush rebellious factions in jerusalem and this will be a way of among other things getting over the humiliation that he had received in his egyptian escapades and so turning back from egypt he would take action against the holy covenant and so he thinks he's fighting on a horizontal plane, but now he's actually fighting against the Lord himself, taking up arms and getting involved with this conflict against the Lord and his proper worship. So this takes us up to the middle of verse 30 and onwards. Antiochus IV sought to humiliate the Jews, defiling and dishonoring their worship. He's the man who comes home from work. He's had a fight with the boss and he kicks the dog. He sought aggressively to Hellenize and paganize the city. He built a large fortress. He required the Jews to refer to the Lord as Jupiter or Zeus Olympius. He set up pagan altars throughout the city and even required that the Jews offer pigs to the Lord. He prohibited faithful Jewish worship and practices, Sabbath, circumcision, feast days. He set up a pagan altar within the temple and this it seems to me, was the abomination that made desolate, offering a pig to Zeus. So all of these things together, with the aid of the apostate Jewish priesthood, was the breakdown of the system, finally, in a terrible sense. He plundered the temple treasury. 
He left a force to control Jerusalem in his absence. And so we can recall Antiochus's actions here and the three-year cessation of Jewish worship was referred to back in chapter eight. It was the 2,300 evenings and mornings that the sanctuary would be trampled underfoot and desolate. So the conflict with Antiochus, as we see in verse 32, is not merely an external one, but it's entangled with internal divisions between Hellenizers and conservative Jews within Jerusalem. And so there are those who violate the covenant. Those aren't Gentiles. Those are Jews who are unfaithful. But at this time, there were many faithful Jews who resisted Antiochus and the forced paganization of the land, and they suffered horrific persecution and many were martyred. And it seems that what we have in verses 34 to 35 is the period of time known as the Maccabean Revolt, the little help that is received. The Judean rebels under Judas Maccabees, a name meaning hammer, whose father Mattathias the Hasmonean sparked the revolt, they defeated the Syrian army and re-established the worship of the temple, rededicating it in December of 165 BC. So think back, we've gone through about a period of 165, 165 years to this point, I think, from um, the end of um, the reign of Alexander. And we've gone back up to through six Syrian wars, and now we're in 165 BC. This was later commemorated, this re-establishment of worship in the temple, as the Feast of Dedication, and we see that being celebrated in the Gospels. The Maccabeans were eventually successful in driving out the Syrian Greeks in 140 BC. They established the Hasmonean dynasty and enjoyed semi-autonomy in the empire. And from around 110 BC, they enjoyed independence and expanded into surrounding regions of the Transjordan, Samaria, and Idumea, the region associated with the Edomites. They forced conversion to Jerusalem upon the Idumeans, the descendants of the Edomites, and later added Galilee to their territory. So this is quite a period of expansion. This is an amazing turnabout of events. It seemed that Jerusalem and the Judeans were on their knees, and yet through this revolt, they are successful against all of the odds. They end up driving back the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes. They end up taking, um, semi, getting semi-autonomy from the Seleucid Empire, and then eventually independence altogether. And so this period of time, much of which is recorded in the books of the Maccabees, was a testing and refining period for the nation. It's a time of expectation of the Lord's visitation as the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel and others were still awaited. So this is a time of fervent expectation of a sense of the Lord's goodness and his deliverance, but also of other forms of corruption. The Hasmonean dynasty arising from Maccabees was a corrupted dynasty in many respects. John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler under which Judea gained independence, claimed both high priestly and royal office and the prerogatives associated with each. And it was he who forced the Idumeans to convert. And so this takes us down to verse 36 and following. And many see verse 36 as a portrait of Antiochus IV relative to his gods, but I don't think that that picture fits Antiochus well. Antiochus, for instance, is king of the north, but this king is attacked by the king of the north. This king also seems to be unfaithful to a covenant that he is under in some way. So it seems to me 
that this is most likely Herod the Great, and the dynasty that follows him is what is being referred to here. So at this point, even though they'd been forcefully converted, the Idumeans had come under the covenant, and the Herods arose from an Idumean ruling family after the Roman Pompey occupied Jerusalem in 63 BC, the Hasmoneans retained some sort of nominal power. In 47 BC, the Romans had appointed Herod the Great's father as procur procurator of Judea. He'd appointed Herod the Great, Herod as his son, as governor of Galilee only a few years later. But Herod's father was killed and Herod took over his position as procurator to strengthen their ties with Rome. The Hasmonean dynasty gave one of their daughters to Herod in marriage. Later, Herod appointed his um, brother-in-law as high priest, caught up in civil war conflict between Mark Antony and Octavian. Herod initially sided with Antony, but as Antony had helped him earlier. But when the tide of the war started to shift, he switched his allegiance to Octavian. And so these events seem to be referred to in verses 40 to 43. The king of the south here is not one of the, is not Ptolemy again, as we've had earlier. It's Mark Antony. The king of the north is Octavian. And so Herod initially fights with the king of the south, but the king of the north comes against him with a superior force and sweeps through the lands. Uh, the lands. And Rome, the king of the north, ends up taking over Egypt, Libya, and then Ethiopia. And in Verse 41, reference is made to the abortive expedition against Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Um, so Herod is, as verses 37 to 39 highlight, he's a man of fortresses, a man who's a wily political operator. He's unfaithful to the covenant and engages in a lot of paganizing practices, in addition to not paying attention to the gods of his fathers. It says that he does not pay attention to the one beloved by women. And it's not entirely clear to me what this is referring to, we could speculate. Maybe he it's a reference to um, some reference to homosexuality. Maybe it's also um, a reference to his opposition to the Messiah or something else. The concluding verses of the chapter return from um, Octavian and the Romans to the character of Herod. And the alarming news from the north probably refers to messages from Antipater, his son, that two of his older sons has spoken against him to Caesar. So Herod ended up killing both of them. And after that, them Antipater, when Antipater tried to kill him. So the alarming news from the east, so we've had the alarming news from the north, now the alarming news from the east seems to be something different. And it seems to me that this is most likely referring to what we read of in Matthew chapter two. In Matthew chapter two, verses one to three, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the news re reaches Herod, by means of the visitors from the east, the Magi, and they say that they've heard this news of the one who's the king of the Jews. And so that leads Herod once again to strike out with violence. And in this case, it's the massacre of the innocents that we read of in Matthew chapter two. The final verse of the chapter likely refers to Herod's two palaces within Jerusalem, one in the temple complex and the other in the upper city. And unfortunately, Herod, this violent king, well, fortunately, would meet a sorry end and no one would come to his help. So that is more or less what chapter 11 covers. There's a lot of ground there. And that really brings us up to date within the um, intertestamental period. It takes us from the end of the reign 
of um, of Alexander the Great, where actually it takes us from the period of the Persians to Alexander the Great, and then all the way down to the beginning of the Gospels. Yes, I, I wanted to ask you finally, but we, we, we've run out of time really, but I wanted to ask you how the Herod, Herod and his successors climax various themes in the Bible, like the Jacob Esau theme, because he's an Edomite, isn't he? And how he fills out the Amalek pattern in the Bible. Can you, can you deal with that in about two minutes? <laughs> yeah, so there's a number of places where we see this rivalry between Jacob and Esau being perpetuated in later generations, and particularly in the descendant of Edom, Amalek. So Amalek is seen in the story of Saul, for instance. Saul, um, the Lord was instructed the Israelites to wipe out Amalek on account of their attempt to kill the Jews at the point of their weakest. When your brother is at the weakest, you should come to their aid. But Amalek does the exact opposite. When Israel is at its weakest, it seeks to prey upon Israel. And so they're told at the end of near the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25, that they need to wipe out Amalek. And this is contrasted in that context with the law concerning the leveret. The leveret is the one who comes to the aid of his brother when he's dead to ensure that his name is not wiped out. Amalek did the opposite. And so we have this rivalry, rivalry with Amalek. In the story of Saul, for instance, he does not kill King, a King Agag, um, Samuel does. And then later on in the story, for instance, of Haman and Esther and Mordecai, Haman seeks to kill the Jews. Haman is described as the Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, who seeks, like Amalek before them, like Amalek before him in a number of different occasions, to kill and wipe out the Jewish nation. Herod is an Idumean or an Edomite. And as we see in events like the killing of the firstborn or, or the killing of the massacre of the innocents, we have um, a similar sort of pattern. He's trying to kill the ones that will be the rival. Um, he's the one who turns against the people of Israel. We see a similar thing at the end of the story of, at the end of the period prior to the exile, the Edomites turn against the Judeans and the people of Judah and try to take advantage of the Babylonians' situation and judgment is declared upon them in the prophets. And we can also think of other events, like at the very end of the events in AD 70, again, the Idumeans tried to pounce at that point. So the Idumeans and the, um, the Jews have a long-term rivalry and Herod fits into that picture. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you, uh, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States on Daniel chapter 11. I'm surprised Hollywood hasn't got hold of all that. It would make a fantastic series of epic movies. Uh, thank you once again, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.